0: Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. I therefore without witnesses baptize myself in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm your apostle now from now to the end of all eternity. Ever since the day you rung my bell when I was 12 years old, I've been with you. Sometimes I zigzagged off course. More zagging than zigging. But I'm gonna tell you, I'm with you now in the straight line forever. Do way, do mine, done, <laughs> you do it your way, I do it mine, but we get it done, don't we? You do it your way, I do it mine, but we get it done, don't we? You have to admit, when it comes to baptism, depending on the tradition of your upbringing, there are really a variety of options out there. What, what's your experience been? I mean, some of you may have grown up, um, you're in New Jersey. Catholic. Catholic folk in the house, we have Catholic people. Oh, like one one person, like, I walked in, I I thought this was a cathedral. Yeah, we know there are more of you out there. Maybe you grew up, uh, maybe you were christened as an infant, right? Where the pastor or the church official kind of poured water over your head as a baby. Or maybe you, you grew up evangelical. We are meeting in a Baptist church after all, and you got dunked as a teenager or a young adult. Right here in front of everyone, you took the plunge, went just completely underwater, hopefully not too long. And you came up sputtering, and everyone just kind of clapped, yay! Or maybe you were like Sonny, the character played by Robert Duvall in that clip we just saw from *The Apostle*. He just decided to forgo like the whole, forgo the whole church thing, and just did it himself. Just jumps in the river, goes under, immerses himself twice for good measure. I love that do-it-yourself baptism. He's like, and in Jesus too, and he goes under. And then you see, of course, someone sprinkling the boats, right? Kind of christening, uh, you know, baptizing the uh, the harbor captains there. Wh- which one of those options is correct? Which one of those is the right way to do baptism? Or better yet, I'll put it in the words of a young woman in our church last year, who heard that Liquid was hosting an Easter baptism service, and she said, "You know, I think I'd like to get baptized, Tim, but I'm not sure I actually need to." And I was like, "Well, what, what do you mean?" She said, well, you see, my parents had me baptized as a child, and I always assumed that, kind of, that counted in God's eyes, but now I'm not so sure because I don't attend their church anymore, and I've actually started my own relationship with Jesus and all, and now my beliefs are like my own, and then she hesitated and asked me this question. She said, well, I guess what I'm wondering is this. Does my baptism count? <laughs> and that's actually a fantastic question. But I want to address the issue tonight as we're coming up on our annual Easter baptism service here at Liquid. Because I realize the subject can be an emotionally charged one for many folks. Here at Liquid, we're blessed to have a lot of returners to the Christian faith. You know, maybe you grew up going to your parents' church and then you left. You know, maybe in high school or college, you did your own thing. You kind of just dropped out of the whole faith deal and, and, and you know, you stopped going to mass or a youth group anymore. And that was, like, very upsetting to your parents. But now that you're older or you're a young adult, maybe you're even in the middle of your life, you're finding your way back to church and that's made your parents like, happy! Michael's finally seeing the light. Oh, happy that is until they learned you weren't going back to their church. That in fact you were attending some church cult called Liquid. Ah, now they're even more upset with you. The prospect of being baptized again or maybe for the first time is confusing to some. Like, does it negate my experience growing up? Or somehow I like, can invalidate the tradition that I knew before coming here. But well, what I want to do tonight is just give us a brief kind of biblical portrait of what the meaning of baptism is. That hopefully answers the question once and for all, did my baptism count? And for those of you who that's not a big burning question for, we want to make a CD available as a resource for you. That you could give to other people who have that question. Because it's a fairly familiar one. Regardless of what denomination or church that you came from. Whether you've been sprinkled, dipped, dunked or nothing at all. The Bible is actually pretty clear about what baptism is and what it is not. And I want to equip each of us with information you need to know to make that decision for yourself. Whatever stage of life you're in, if you're young, single, married, middle-aged, maybe you're coming back to faith, older, just starting your journey, whatever, we're a very diverse crowd here. And what I thought I'd do is, I mean, you guys know I was an English major. I taught language and the humanities, so I thought we could actually start linguistically, and that is, you might be surprised to learn that the word baptism actually is not a religious word at all. And I, now, I know, know some people are going, what do you mean by that? I've never even heard the word before tonight. <laughs> or baptism, except you hear it in religious settings, right? People don't say like, oh, I think I'm going to go baptize my laundry this Sunday. They don't, you don't use them in everyday discourse. It's a highly religious word, spiritual concept. Eh, not really, <laughs> See, if you go back to antiquity, to ancient Greek culture, you discover that the word that we say baptize, or baptizo in the Greek, was actually a common everyday word used by non-religious folks simply to describe the process of dunking something underwater. That word, baptizo, can we all say baptizo? Let's do it. Baptizo, good. It had a pretty common usage, actually, in ancient Greek culture. They literally, the Greeks literally defined the verb as to dip, or to dunk, or immerse. Here, give you an example of how it was used. It was used of ships, actually, that were sunk in battle. If a ship was hit, took on water, and it sunk, it was baptizoed. You baptizoed my battleship. (laughs) It was also used of people who were drowned, because their bodies actually filled with water, went underwater to the bottom of the sea. It was used, it had a figurative meaning, actually. Again, not religious at all. It was used to refer to a person who was head and shoulders in debt. We spoke about that in our recently completed series on money, right? When you, it's where you get the phrase, he's drowning in debt. But it mostly had to do with being immersed or submerged in liquid. For instance, the verb baptizo was used to describe the way a woman would dye cloth. That was a common usage for the word. Where, where you take a piece of fabric, go back uh, one, gen, Where you take a piece of fabric like you want to, to baptizo it, you submerge it underwater, dip the cloth and dye and when you pulled it out it would emerge a brand new collar very ordinary domestic term for everyday stuff the word was used to refer to people actually who were swimming or bathing too just just common stuff not religiously stuff and that's how the greeks used that word baptizo consistently up to new testament times immersing something or someone in liquid ...dipping, dunking, plunging underwater. Now, this is funny. Just to give you a sense of how non-spiritual the background of this term baptizo is... ...scholars came across a 2,000-year-old recipe in ancient Greece... ...for how to make pickles. And the recipe says that you take the cucumber and you baptizo it... ...in a vinegar solution. That's how the ancient Greeks described the pickle-making process... ...you submerge the, the vegetable and liquid, in this case vinegar... ...and after a spell it emerged a new entity. It's a pickle now. Look, I found that fascinating. All right? I, don't, <laughs> I, I didn't know that's how you made pickles. You know, The process actually hasn't changed that much over the centuries. I even went on the internet to, and just kind of googled... you know, ...recipe for pickles, just to get more details. And one recipe recommended that the pickle stay immersed... ...for up to five weeks before you take it out. And I think the point is fairly obvious... The problem with baptism for many of you is that you haven't been held under long enough. <laughs> Point. The term baptizo has very earthy origins. It didn't start out as a religious term with big significance. The Greek used it as an everyday verb to describe whatever they dip, dunk, or immerse something under liquid. And, and what's interesting is that verb was never translated into English. Most of the words in our New Testament, in our Bible, right? These are, these are translations of Greek noun and verbs in the New Testament. But the word baptizo never was translated. It was just downloaded right into our English language and made into the English word baptized. It just cut off the ending. It's one of the only words in the Bible that is like that. Now, something interesting happened around the time of Jesus. In fact, prior to Jesus' arrival with this concept of baptism. And this is where it started taking on a religious significance. Let's say you lived in ancient Greece. You were were a Greek businessman, okay? You lived in Greek antiquity. And like many Greeks at the time, you believed in in the gods and goddesses of the Greek, you know, pantheon. Zeus, Apollos, Athena, right? Remember, Greek culture was extremely spiritually pluralistic. Lots of gods and goddesses. But let's say because you were a businessman or a trader, you increasingly came into contact with Jewish folks. Hebrews, as you did your business. You're a merchant, and you began to admire them because these Jews, you know, they seem to live pretty devout lives. They subscribe to this, like, set of, like, um, they've got, like, these 10 laws that seem like pretty good moral guidelines. And based on your positive, you know, interaction with these Jewish people, you became increasingly influenced by the Hebrews and their faith. And so one day you asked one of your Jewish friends, you know, what would it actually entail to become Jewish? If I wanted to convert, abandon my belief in Zeus and Apollos, and I want to become a follower of this God that you worship, this one true God of this, 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 the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh is, is what you call him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what would that involve if I want to convert? And your Jewish friend would likely tell you, wow, <laughs> a Gentile wants to become a Jew. Well, um, hmm, how does it start? Well, it starts with a little snip-snip. Uh, yeah, not plunge, plunge. Yeah, there's this tradition called circumcision. <laughs> it's a mark of being Jewish. One of God's chosen people set apart. And you're like, nope. maybe I should stick with Zeus, <laughs> right? Not bad. But if you were able to swallow that and get over it, the rest of the Jewish rituals would be pretty easy. You'd be, have to subscribe to the Torah or this, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Become a student of the Old Testament scriptures, love Moses. And if you were down with that, one of the final things you'd have to do to complete your conversion to become a Jew was to undergo a ceremonial washing or bath in front of people. In other words, you'd have to be publicly baptizoed, immersed yourself in a cistern of water in front of a full crowd of Jews as witnesses that you are publicly declaring, I am no longer identifying with the Greek gods But I am identifying with the God of the Jewish faith, Yahweh. Goodbye, Athena. (laughs) That's it. I'm washing myself of my Gentileness. And so you'd be baptized in public. That ritual washing symbolizing a new birth into a new system of beliefs. Like you're washing your, your Gentileness away. I'm now a follower of this God of the Old Testament. A Greek, reborn as a Jew. And this is the first time in antiquity that this concept of immersing or washing... ...is beginning to be used in a religious context. Great. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. And this strange character appears on the scene called John the Baptist. Good. And we're told in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew, it says... ...in those days, John the Baptist came preaching... In the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the call of John to the Jewish people was, repent, right? meant that they had fallen away, actually, from their allegiance to Yahweh or the Jewish God of the Bible. They may have been ceremonially Jews or, or Jewish by birth, but they were no longer living a life of obedience to God that he desired. And so this guy, John, comes calling for repentance, which literally means doing an about-face, about a 180-degree turn from the rebellious, self-centered life you're living. Just turn back to God and begin following the way of living that he's prescribed right here in his word. That was John's message, right? Repent. Turn to God. Confess your sins and your neglect of him and turn your life over to his rule and care. That's literally what repent means. Turn again. You need to undergo a radical life change. And to the people who responded to John's invitation, guess what he did with them? Anyone? Yeah, he dunked them, okay? The first Baptist in recorded scripture. <laughs> As a kid growing up, you grow up kind of thinking like that's, you know, you read that like John the Baptist and you think, oh, that's just his denomination, you know? John the Baptist, Glenn the Presbyterian, you know, the Tower of the Lutheran, Sally the, you know, Wicca priestess, whatever. <laughs> like, it's a, like it's a denomination. No, no, no. John was actually deemed the Baptist because this was the first time ever in recorded history that a person was baptizing another person on God's behalf. Recall, up to this time, if you want to become a Jew, you actually baptized yourself. You ceremonially washed your hands, your arms, your body, yourself in front of people. But now here comes John dunking people in the Jordan River, taking them under as a sign of repentance. And so they call him John the Baptist. Actually, I love the fact that John was the first Baptist. Because most folks think of Baptist preachers, you know, like in in a three-piece suit with big hair and like a big, you know, powder blue cornflower tie. (laughs) Not so. John was actually a pretty crunchy dude. Check out these verses. Verses 4 through 6. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Here's the first potluck in church history, right? People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea... ...into the whole region of the Jordan... ...confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So now you see baptism is beginning to take on... ...the significance of returning to God... ...or repentance, sorrow for sin... ...and radical life change... I know some of you are just like, you can't even get over the locust and honey thing. <laughs> locust and honey thing, like, just suggests John was the first Southern Baptist, you know? It's what they eat down there, right? We you know we're Northerners. So, this message of this prophet was pretty powerful. And people came to John from all over to be baptizoed in the Jordan River, publicly declaring they're returning to God and obeying his word. Now, just as John was getting pretty popular with folks, he cautioned the whole crowd in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Whoa. Jewish people are saying there's a new meaning to baptism. We see John instituting here, but there's something beyond this. Who is this? Someone with a more powerful message than this prophet? Who could it be? And here's where we're first introduced to the concept of Christian baptism. That is Christ-centered baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, no, no, no. I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented and we're given this description of the full baptizoing or immersion, the dipping and dunking of Christ Jesus himself. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Okay? Jesus now, the son of God himself, is baptized... ...and God the Father speaks his approval for everyone to hear. Now you get a neat symmetry here. Do you get this? Jesus is John's cousin and as he goes under the water... ...he's making a public declaration for everyone to know... ...that he is obedient to Yahweh. And when he comes up out of the water... ...God the Father makes a public declaration of his own for everyone to hear... ...that he's well pleased with his son... This is not just a prophet calling people to repentance. This is my son opening a new way to restore life with me, your heavenly father. And so one of the first things you discover about biblical baptism... ...is that it's actually an act of obedience. And Jesus is our model for being baptized. One of the things that I tell people who are considering becoming Christians... ...is that they'll never be asked to do anything that Christ himself has not already done... (laughs) That is, I'll talk with people and they'll say, Well, if I become a Christian, Tim, does that mean I have to da da da, da? Or will I have to give up? Da, da, da? And I'd say, Becoming a follower of Christ means exactly that. You follow him, you walk in his footsteps. That's what a disciple does. But understand, Jesus will never ask you to do anything that he himself has not already undergone. You will not be tempted in any way with which Jesus cannot identify. He was tempted in every way yet as the sinless son of God was without sin. You will not be asked to sacrifice in some unique way that Jesus hasn't already sacrificed himself. So as Jesus was obedient to his father, we become obedient to Christ. We follow his example. We trust his lead. And this extends to this act of being baptized. It's obedience. That's not interpretation. That's just what it is. Now, Jesus makes this pretty explicit. I mean, if you're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe Jesus just did that and, you know, it was, maybe he ended it. What if he ended the right? <laughs> That's not interpretation because he makes it very explicit, actually, in the closing verses of the Gospel of Matthew. After his resurrection from the dead, but just before he ascends to be with his Father in heaven, Jesus gathers his disciples together. One last time. Gather around, guys. I'm going to give you closing instructions now. Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Now you guys, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizoing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So, so Jesus gives us, do you see the symmetry of this? The gospel, the New Testament opens with Jesus giving his example, and in Matthew closes, he gives his command continue the practice of immersing my followers in water to signify the new life that I'm giving them. Matthew is literally bookended. Christ's model for baptism opened, then his command to be baptized to close it. So that's a pretty just clear survey to start, right? We're commissioned to follow Christ's example when it comes to baptism. But here's the deal. This might be interesting, but it doesn't really answer our original question. Does mine count? <laughs> And some of you are still wondering that. You're like, I was sprinkled as an infant, so does it count or not? (laughs) Well, whenever someone asks a variation of that question, does my baptism count, I actually usually answer them with a question. Not to be annoying, but I usually say, well, it depends. What are you hoping it counts for? See, there's some confusion about what exactly happens when a person actually goes under the waters of baptism. And that's what lies at the heart of the issue in this clip that I'm about to show you. This is from a movie with a good lofty King James version title called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh mothers, let's go down. Come on down, don't go down? Come on, mothers, let's go down. down. Well, I guess hard times flush the chunk. Everybody's looking for answers. Same. well that's it boys i've been redeemed the preacher done washed away all my sins and transgressions it's a straight and narrow from here on out and heaven everlasting's my reward delbert what are you talking about we got bigger fish to fry the preacher said all my sins is washed away including that piggly wiggly i knocked over in yazoo i thought you said you was innocent of in those charges well i was lying and the preacher said that that sin's been washed away, too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. <sighs> the preacher done said my sin's been washed away. <laughs> Even the piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I love the George Clooney part, right? Uh, but you said you were innocent of those charges. Well, I lied. And the preacher said I was clear to that, too. Not bad deal, right? What is the deal with baptism? Does it wash away our sins? Does the very act itself somehow magically absolve us of all our wrongs, faults, and failures? It's kind of, you know, making us eligible for heaven, I guess, right? This is really the crux of the issue, folks. Because what you believe baptism represents is what determines whether or not you've been biblically baptized according to the scriptures. See, there's really two camps on this thing. And depending on what tradition or denomination you've grown up in, you may believe that baptism is a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? How many have heard that word before? If you're Catholic, maybe Lutheran, you might know a sacrament is considered a very mysterious ritual of the church. And the idea is that a sacrament is endowed with special powers that actually result in our very salvation. Some groups, like Anglicans or Roman Catholics... Consider baptism in the Eucharist, communion, to be the two key sacraments, the sacred symbols of the gospel. But it's more than just a symbol. They actually regard them as the principal sacrament that's ordained for our salvation. Being baptized is more than just a symbol, you know, that that, that reflects reconciliation with God. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the act of baptism actually has the power to cleanse sins in itself. Check out this direct quote from a Catholic catechism for adults. This is the church's confession of faith. I take it out word for word. The sacraments not only point externally to salvation, getting right with God... ...they contain and bestow the salvation they signify. They actually cause the salvation to happen. In other words, those sacraments actually have saving power. (laughs) They intrinsically have the ability to wash away the sins... And therefore, now this might make sense for you, therefore you wouldn't want to die without having been baptized. Or without having taken communion. Now that is why, for instance, in the Catholic tradition, there's such a rush to have a baby baptized or christened. You ever have that happen? <laughs> like we have, we have some Italian uh, relatives, uh, like you half her family is Italian, most of them are Catholic. They think I'm a priest, they still call me Father Tim. They think I, like, lead lead this, like, rogue parish... ...because they're like, how are you married, though? Wow, cool. You're a very progressive Catholic priest. (laughs) But they're always, always rushing to get any new additions to the family... baptized as quickly as they can... ...because you wouldn't want to have a baby perish or die of some illness... ...because then they can't go to heaven. They may get caught in limbo. Now, that's another topic. But that's the idea. And the problem with an infant receiving the sacrament of baptism... ...is twofold. It's an interesting tradition, but I put it delicately. It simply ain't in here. It's not scriptural. See, the Bible's very clear that salvation... ...or right standing with God is A, a personal or voluntary decision. Something that you actually have to decide for yourself. Not something done involuntarily for you... ...or on your behalf by, like, your parents... And secondly, scripture is emphatic that salvation isn't dependent on anything you do outside of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that includes baptism even in his name. The Bible tells us that it's the blood of Christ, not the waters of baptism, that takes away our sins. In Ephesians 1-7, Paul tells us plainly, in Christ we have redemption, what? Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 echoes the central truth. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile himself to all things by making peace. How? Through his blood shed on the cross. Now this is key folks. This is about salvation. And about what God's word tells us. Yes, we are separated at birth from God. Yes, we are sinful people. And yes, all our faults and our failings have us in need of reconciliation with our Father. There's an estrangement between us, yes. But when Jesus Christ appeared on the scene, the Son of God in the flesh... ...He appeared, according to Scripture, to make peace with God through His blood shed on the cross. They say blood is thicker than water. Yes, in the spiritual realm too. That's why the cross is the central symbol of the Christian faith. It's the doorway... Or the entry back into the family of God. So when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago, the way back to God was forever changed. No longer did one need to perform ceremonial washings, gotta baptize, immerse myself, or have to make sacrifices in order to have right standing before God. God loved us so much that he came to us, sending Jesus to lay down his life in our place once and for all. It's over. No more would any man or woman ever have to try in vain to make themselves acceptable to God. And suddenly, it didn't matter whether one was Jew or Greek. Everyone now had the freedom to be forgiven and welcomed in the family of God through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's a reason the blood of Christ is more powerful than water. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, How much more then will the blood of Christ... Who through the eternal spirit offered himself, what? Unblemished to God. Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. That's in Hebrews 9. When it says unblemished, the idea, Christ was the only sinless being ever to walk this earth. (laughs) And as the sinless son of God, he was actually able to offer himself in a way that no one ever could to God before. Unblemished. That's what it means. Free from sin in our place. That's love. Jesus bearing the effects of our sin when he had no reason to. And when we are covered by his blood through faith in what he did on the cross, an amazing thing happens. God cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. In other words, we are purified of all of our sins. Most folks will tell you it's about being good (laughs) or doing good works, kind of earning your way to heaven. Uh Uh-uh, not so. It's Jesus, the free gift of God's one and only Son dying in our place. As some might say, going to church or participating in a religious ritual, a sacrament like baptism, that saves you. I was baptized as an infant. Doesn't that make me a Christian? No. According to the Bible, it's the blood, not the water, that is the source of salvation, not baptism, not any man-made rituals. The Bible's clear. God lovingly forgives and restores people ...through faith in his son Jesus. That's what makes us eligible for heaven. In this regard, Mark sixteen sixteen is, ...is a key verse that kind of spells this out. Mark writes, whoever believes... ...and is baptized will be saved. That's actually where a lot of people... ...who are in favor of you know, salvation by baptism... ...just kind of cut it off. They put a dot, dot, dot after saved. But you look at the second part of the verse... ...whoever does not believe... ...will be condemned. Notice the primary emphasis is on what? Believing or baptism. Which is the first primary emphasis? Belief. Whoever believes first and then is baptized will be saved. First you believe and then be baptized as a sign of your salvation. But wait, are you you sure that doesn't imply you need to do both? No. Look at the second part of the verse. What's conspicuously missing? Whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's not if you believe but you forget to be baptized, I'm sorry, you're screwed. Now... The only way you miss out on salvation is if you fail to put your trust in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Believe first in your heart and then be baptized as an outward symbol of that inward reality. All throughout scripture, the emphasis is on voluntary belief, not baptism for salvation. Now that's important Something important to mention here because to believe is more than intellectual agreement that Jesus is God. <laughs> you know, about 80% of this country considers themselves Christians. A lot of folks believe in Jesus, that he was a a man, historically he was here, he was a good teacher, great ideals. And they might even acknowledge that he was God. Yeah, Jesus is God. That's not necessarily saving belief. To truly believe in this context means to put our full trust and confidence in him that he alone can save us, nothing else. It's to put Christ in charge of our present plans and our eternal destiny, everything banking on him. Believing is both trusting his words are reliable... ...and then relying on him, actually. You're going to have to change me, Jesus. You're the only one who has the power... ...to make a lick of difference in my life. And that's an invitation... ...because if you've never trusted Christ... ...put your belief, your full confidence... ...in his love... ...and his sacrifice on the cross for you... That's his pr- ...the promise of everlasting life... ...is being held out to you. You have to believe. And that's how you're saved. Now, once you believe... You made that voluntary determination for yourself. I, I believe it. It's true. Then you are to be baptized. It is an important mile marker that's supposed to happen after one puts their belief in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful symbol. Something that takes place inside of you. It's kind of interesting because the word sacrament is not a bad word. You know what actually sacrament means? Let's see if those of you who are linguistically oriented. Think of it. Sacre. meant. Anyone know? Sacre. Anyone? Sacred moment. And baptism is a sacred moment. But it's not a salvation moment. It has no power to save you. By going under the water or being sprinkled as an infant, you're not saved. I'm sorry, I can't sugarcoat that too much for you. It's only when you truly believe and make that confession of faith on your own, your own volition, you turn to God. You say, you know what, Lord? I am a sinner. I know that well. And I need you. And you voluntarily placed your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's the moment your sins are washed away. Including the piggly wiggly and you knocked over in Yazoo, right? That's what actually gives Christian baptism the powerful meaning that Scripture ascribes to it. All right? Now, put the math together. Watch. Ready? Do it together. Ready? Look what you learned. Look at the evolution, okay, of baptism. The Greeks had this secular usage, right? Dip, dunk, immerse, pickles, people, whatever. Then it came to the Jews, right? No, it has religious ceremonially wash, right? To convert. You're cleansing yourself of your old religion, putting on a new one. Then here comes John the Baptist with his locusts. He's introducing this idea of repentance. No, it has to do with sin. You've got to return, turn from your sins. This is a great foundation, setting the stage for the one to come. And who's that? Jesus, whose life, whose death. And then his resurrection takes baptism to its fullest symbolic power. It's not just the cross. Because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the first fruits of us who believe in him to be resurrected from the dead, the complete transformation of baptizo ritual was complete. Now with Christ dying for us, and all of a sudden, raised to life by the power of God, think about the meaning that baptism takes on. Think about the symbolism, right, of going under the water. Its origins, right, referred to a ship that was sunk. Or someone who was drowned, death, burial. <sighs> but then coming up out of the water, the water's being broken, just as they do in natural birth. We emerge fresh and clean into a new life. A sin-healed life. A symbol of Resurrection. Romans 6, 3 through 5 explains the meaning of baptism beautifully. This is a wonderful paraphrase in the message. Um, I love this. Take a look at this. That is what happened in baptism, Paul writes. When we, Christians, went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace. God's free forgiveness. A new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. Verse 4. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. That's the powerful significance of Christian baptism. We're not just repenting of our sins. But we are publicly identifying with the key aspects of Christ's life. With the death of Jesus. With the burial of Jesus. And with what? The resurrection of Jesus. We say, I want that. I want to die to sin. I want to die to my old self. I want to be raised to a new life. A grace-filled resurrection life with Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Just as God the Father raised him from the grave, I too want to be resurrected to new life. Fresh start that will carry on into eternity. With that in mind, you can begin to understand why we're so excited to be hosting our next baptism celebration on Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. What better time to do it? That's why we do it annually in the spring. It's a wonderful time. We commemorate on Easter and resurrection what? That God's love was actually so powerful for his children, he didn't just forgive them. But he infused them with new life, eternal life, now and forever. And that's what we'll be celebrating if you decide to be baptized here at Liquid on Sunday, April 16th. We actually do it right here in the sanctuary. We bring in a little baby pool and a slip and slide right here. No. Some of you know there's actually behind this curtain. Behind this curtain. I sound like the Wizard of Oz. Behind this curtain, behind back there, or behind those bushes over there, you'll see the cutout. There's a four-foot tank of water, okay? Okay. And what happens is pretty simple, actually. You sign up. (laughs) You tell us your story. And what what I simply mean by that is how you came to place your trust in Jesus. Maybe it's tonight. And then on that Sunday, we go swimming. (laughs) I go up there in that tank. I wear this big pair of hip waders that make me look like a redneck fisherman. And you'll wear a white robe. And you'll simply wade down into the water, into the pool. And you'll briefly just share your testimony. We give you like three minutes to talk. And that's... Now I know, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I'd have to talk. This is nothing to get intimidated about. We actually let you write it out, keep it under a few minutes. And then, it's pretty simple, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus instructed in Matthew chapter 28. I actually take you down into the water. You're identifying with Jesus' death and burial. I hold you under for three days. <laughs> just kidding. And you're raised up out of the water, and we hand you a towel. And everyone usually, you know, they clap or they cry. It's not a moment that you become a Christian. Rather, it's like a birthday party. You're celebrating the fact that I have been born again. I've been raised to new life in the family of God. It was my choice. No one else did this for me. It's your moment to publicly announce that you're trusting Jesus, and you're going to follow him. And maybe it will be the first time that you declare that your faith is actually finally your own. It's not your parents. In front of your peers in this community. Now you certainly won't be alone. We usually get a pretty good group to take the plunge on the same night. And what's cool is that you'll actually be following in the tradition of Christ followers down through the ages. ...who've gone before you. I want you to turn real quick to Acts 16. This is a scripture. I I put some up on on the slides for you, but this one isn't. So go to Acts 16 there in your Bible. And this is a great example of really how the early church practiced this. Over and over you're going to see the pattern again. This is Acts 16, verses 13 through 15. And again, this records the acts of the apostles. This is like what they did. And here you're going to see what Paul did... ...with new believers who put their trust in Jesus... Uh, Look at verse 13. It says, this is Paul. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So Paul encounters some women around a river. And one of them listening was a woman named Lydia. Lydia, oh, Lydia. Have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. Do you remember that? This is the passage that comes from. Okay. One of these women, uh, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. It means she was Jewish, apparently, at this point. Well, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, okay? All you know, Lydia, influential wealthy merchant but she was a woman not really kind of welcome into the department according to ancient religions and Paul goes to her tells her about this crucified Christ rose again for you for the forgiveness of your sins you can have new life and what's it say after she opened her heart to respond to Paul's message the message of the crucified risen Jesus she was baptized Right there. Not, not only here, but actually it says the members of her household. Over and over again. You're going to see in the New Testament the example of an adult person making a voluntary decision to believe the news about Jesus. And then they immediately make public proclamation of it. In the presence of their family and friends. Look, skip over a few verses. Look at uh, verses 30 through 34. Later on after this, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail because they're, you know, they're, they're causing all sorts of problems with this new news about Jesus. They're thrown in jail... It's kind of a nutty kind of passage. Uh, look at verse 30. Um, an earthquake happens because God wants to free them to get the message out there. They're singing hymns and stuff. There's an earthquake. And, uh, and they don't escape. They hang around, actually. And the jailer, the guy who's in charge of the jail, he can't believe it. It says, he, this is verse 30, Acts 16, 30. He brought out Paul and Silas and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, let's say it together. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because... He had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. Again, there's the pattern set out for us. It's the most straightforward question. He goes, what must I do to be saved? They give him the most straightforward answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. (laughs) What happens next? Baptism party. (laughs) Again, the belief of this jailer stimulated something with his wife, his kids, his servants, and they believed as well. It's the pattern we see over and over again throughout New Testament scripture, okay? Okay? ...belief results in salvation, then baptism is the symbol of that. They heard the message of God's love for them in Christ Jesus... ...believe and bore witness by being baptized in front of their friends and family. It's funny, you hear a lot about coming out parties nowadays. I won't even go into the, you know, kind of broke back business of that... ...the connotations of that that we understand. But for a Christian, being baptized is kind of like a coming out party. (laughs) Announcing to family and friends, I'm giving my life to a new lifestyle... With One with Christ Jesus at the center. I'm now following him. He's going to guide my decisions. I'm going to submit my will to him. And I'm going to actually bank my eternal future on what Jesus has done for me. In a very dramatic and public way, you are identifying yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You say, yes, this is what I'm giving my life to. I'm going to follow him. So when we celebrate baptism here at Liquid, it's typically, I'll be honest with you, it's an emotional service usually. (laughs) Because it's packed with great meaning for folks. You know, this jailer was doing this, and and quite honestly, it might have meant his life. There are many countries that to be baptized publicly announcing, I'm following Jesus, will also get you publicly stoned. When we do that here, folks invite their family and their friends, because they, they tell their testimonies. And it's one of the most powerful things, way more powerful than any messages that I give, because you can't argue with someone's life story. This is how my life changed. I put my faith in Jesus, and everything got turned upside down. And now I'm giving my life to him. As I said, although baptism is not a salvation moment, I do believe it is a sacred moment in which God is present in a very special way. At Jesus' baptism, you see the special presence of the Holy Spirit there in the form of a dove alighting on him. And today, I suspect that it's almost as if God's ears kind of perk up when one of his children actually steps forward out of the shadows, out of their private belief to say, I'm going public with this, I'm coming out. I am publicly announcing my faith in God's Son and my intention to obey and follow Jesus with my life. How pregnant is that moment? And then, Again, Scripture tells us that the Father himself actually bears witness. Just as he did the original baptism of his own son, and he says in effect to everyone witnessing it, this is my child Brian is my son. Aaron is my daughter. And with her, I am well pleased. Sacred moment that symbolizes your obedience to your father and your new identity as his beloved child. So back to our original question. Does my baptism count? Can you answer that? It starts with, what are you hoping it counts for? It doesn't count if you're looking for it to to, to save you. God doesn't give preferential treatment to those who have been sprinkled, dipped, dunked, or plunged. <laughs> we know it's the blood of Christ alone that opens the gates of God's forgiveness and embrace in heaven when this life is over. That's not just rhetoric. Baptism is not essential for salvation. You need to look no further than probably Jesus' dying moment. Remember the guy on his right or his left? The thief on the cross. Remember? He actually makes this confession as he's about to die, probably hours or minutes away from actually dying, and he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus answer him? I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say to the thief, oh, oh boy, we're, we're in a bind. There's no pool. There's no pool. I don't think the soldiers are going to let me sprinkle. I don't, I don't. No! because you believed, you confessed publicly you're on a cross that I am the Son of God and I'm up here bleeding for you, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm, I'm not making light of this. The Bible's clear. Baptism's not essential for salvation. But you have a luxury the thief never had, a life to follow and a path to walk in. And given the chance, it's a step God wants every Christ follower to take. What about if you were baptized as an infant, by the way? I would actually just kind of ask you, what do you remember about it? (laughs) Probably nothing, right? Which is probably a pretty good sign that it likely wasn't a voluntary decision on your behalf. Now, I want to step lightly here because this does not detract or negate what your parents did for you. Birth is an important moment in life. Thank you, master of the obvious. (laughs) And most parents are anxious at birth. Colleen and I were to commemorate that with something that shows their commitment to raise your right. And that's precious. That's not to be diminished. We actually do that right here at Liquid when we dedicate children, right? We just don't baptize them. But we do bring them before our entire church family here. We usually hold them up and publicly commit them and their parents to the care and keeping of the Lord. It's a wonderful time. So if you've been sprinkled or christened or dedicated in some way as an infant, That's awesome. Being baptized as an adult does not cancel negate or devalue what your parents did for you as a youngster. That was a special moment too, wonderful. But this is as my faith is finally my own. I know what I believe and who I'm going to follow. So in that case you may want to be rebaptized. And I understand that can be upsetting to a parent. You know, they might go, "Oh, what was wrong with the first one?" You know, don't you love us? All right, you may want to give them a copy of this CD. We're going to make it available free starting next week, just as a resource to help you explain what you're doing. You're not joining some cult <laughs> or rejecting the spiritual foundation that they've tried to give you. Being rebaptized actually can happen for all sorts of reasons, not just if you're an infant, but maybe you were baptized as a teen. You know, like all the cool kids in the youth group were doing it. So you figured, why not? You know, you took the plunge, you know, sat in the first row, you know, kind of just like, you know, Couldn't care less, but just like everyone's doing it, everyone's bringing their towel, I'm gonna be the only guy not in a bathing suit. All right, I don't want to diminish that either. But perhaps you're at the moment in your spiritual journey where you've moved from familiarity to belief, from group pressure to personal identification. You're staking your life on this Jesus thing. And you want that sacred moment not to be motivated by parental or peer pressure, but by personal choice. I'm identifying with Jesus then go for it. As Ananias encouraged Paul in Acts 22, Paul knew a thing about baptism. This is what Ananias said to him. And now, Paul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. If you hear God's invitation to take this step of faith, we've made it very easy to do that. We actually put a whole slew of these flyers up here for you to take afterwards. And you can take a look at it, it just kind of lays out all the details and frequently asked questions about baptism, how it happens, what do you wear. It's nothing really dramatic, you just wear a bathing suit and we give you a white robe and you get dumped. And then we have cupcakes. Uh, you know, we, got, we do it right, you know. We really <laughs> uh, it's pretty simple, straightforward. You actually just sign up with Pastor Glenn. And we'd love to celebrate Easter with you this way. It's on April 16th, we're doing at both services And you pick the service you want to be baptized, and then we do the rest. And I hope you'll be a part of it if you haven't already done so. All right? Let's stand together, okay? Just as a family for prayer. And there may be people who this is your moment, you want to talk to God personally. All right? Jesus, we want to thank you for your model, for your example, and your command to follow you into the waters of baptism. But but thank you most of all for your love for your willingness to take to the cross for our sins, for my sin, Jesus, so I could be reconciled to my true Father. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us, for offering forgiveness and new life through your Spirit. I want to give time to pray. If you've never talked to God or accepted the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus' blood, you can do that now. Just simply pray to him. Lord, I am a sinner. I need you. I accept you. I don't know all that it's going to involve following you, but I'm giving my life to it. I'm going to trust you. That's why it's called faith. Forgive my sins. Put your spirit in me and raise me to new life. If that's something that you prayed or you have questions about and you want to talk after, maybe you want to pray after, whatever, you come up. Lord, we pray now for all of us here that you would go out, Lord, and empower us with your spirit. Um, Lord, you didn't just forgive us to get us into heaven. This isn't fire insurance. You gave us a new life to live. So now come, Holy Spirit. Come in new power. Fill us up, Lord. Let us be clear and fearless as we bring your good news. The friendship of God available to everyone now through Jesus. Do it in our lives this week. Allow our conversations to be pleasing to you, Lord. Give us opportunities to tell others. And we thank you, Lord. We love you as only your children can.